Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamisa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Andrew Rosenberg about his book, Undesirable Immigrants, Why Racism Persists in International Migration, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an assistant professor of political science at the University of Florida. Um, I study lots of different things, including, of course, international migration, race and racism in the international order, and global inequality. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa, and I did my PhD at Ohio State. Wonderful. So how did you come to write this book, Undesirable Immigrants? Yeah, that's the that's sort of the sixty four thousand dollar question, I think. So, <laughs> um, uh, the the genesis of the book started um, around twenty fifteen. So I was a graduate student, and I was sort of casting around, looking for something to spend my time on, just like everybody, right? And um, I don't know. I was having a difficult time finding something in the conventional international relations canon that I could really sink my teeth into. And I don't know, my advisors and mentors just suggested that I look out into the world for something politically important and interesting that I thought was perhaps underexplored in the literature or in the discipline at large. And and that's what I did. So 2015 is sort of an infamous year for people who study migration because um, that's the year, you know, sort of the peak year of uh, the so-called uh, a Syrian uh, refugee crisis. And so I saw this going on and um, uh, I had read just that year uh, Bob Vitalis's great book, uh, White World Order, Black Power Politics. And so I was thinking of, about issues of race and international politics, not just from the perspective of the role that race and racism played in sort of creating the discipline over the course of the 20th century, but but also how structural racism and racial inequality actually manifest today in the international system, sort of via the, a long historical process that we can talk about later. And so that's how I came up with the idea. And now how I came to write the book is a bit of a as a very sort of 2020 to 2022 story. So uh, I started uh, at Florida in the fall of 2019. And uh, that fall, I was sort of thinking about the argument of the book. You know, I, I think like a lot of people was sort of put off by my actual dissertation. And I was trying to think about what the narrative of the book was going to be. And so um, I was thinking about that during the fall and writing during the winter But then, of course, the pandemic happens. And so I had all these grand plans about integrating uh, the individual level, the state level and the international system level of analysis into this big, ambitious thing. Um, But I was in a position where the only place that I could go was, I don't know, from my bedroom to the kitchen table. And, uh, you know, it was uh, a situation where I, I wanted to figure out something that I could do from my house that would be able to make the same arguments I wanted to make that would of course leave meat on the bone going forward for future projects, hopefully, but that would be a contribution that people would want to read. And so I 
took advantage of, um, you know, my privileged position here and just did it. And that's the story. And the result is, a, is an incredibly insightful book. Um, so, so let's dive in. Um, now, as I understand it, a central contention of the book is that even though most countries' immigration policies seem colorblind, racism actually persists. So can I ask you to reflect a little bit on what you mean when you discuss racial bias in this context? Yeah, of course. And this was the first major hurdle of the project many years ago, because the the sort of inferential issue is that laws today no longer explicitly discriminate on the basis of race, but I and others sort of had this inkling that racial inequality persisted. And I needed to figure out how to conceptualize that and eventually try to measure it. And so what I wanted to do is think about a way of being as judicious and conservative as possible in thinking about what racial inequality looks like in migration in the contemporary international system. And of course, that led to a variety of questions of what I mean by race and racism. And that led me down the path to thinking about uh, Alan Locke's definition or conceptualization of race. And Alan Locke is... um, He's an African-American scholar who wrote prolifically on the philosophy of race, as well as on international relations back in the early 20th century. And he saw race as what he calls an ethnic fiction, where different ethnic groups have various traits that are construed by others, particularly those in uh, power at the top of the racial hierarchy as favorable and unfavorable. And so we conceptualize race by thinking about which people from which places have traits that we think as being favorable or unfavorable. And this, in the simplest sense, you can think of as reducing to a uh, white supremacist international hierarchy, but that was my starting point. And so with that starting point, I wanted to think, okay, given that division of the world into a racial hierarchy that is reasonable cross-nationally, because the notions of race are are difficult to think about cross-nationally, how can I go about actually trying to uncover this thing? And the idea of racial bias, going back to the original question, is related to sort of conventional notions of bias. Like when we think about, I don't know, the media being biased or a statistical estimator being biased, that's how I was thinking about bias. So what I did was try to come up with the best prediction possible for how much migration we should see from a given country in a given time period and then compare that to our best estimate of how much migration there actually was from that place, take that difference and see whether non-white states in the global South migrated systematically less when compared to their counterparts in the global North. So it's a bit of a rough and ready strategy, but given the, we'll say, putatively colorblind international system that we live in today, that was was the, the best thing I could come up with. 
And we'll talk much more about the empirics in a minute. But one of the first things you do in the book is you go after an assumption that's held by many people in international relations and even many migration scholars, which is the assumption that the right to exclude foreigners is inherent to sovereignty. Mm-hmm. You argue that this assumption is incorrect. Can you can you I tell do. us about that? Yeah, of course. You know, you say that it's conventional wisdom amongst international relations scholars and in fact some scholars of migration, but I think it's most powerful as a bit of conventional wisdom that is lingering out there in the world at large. You see people like um, the late Justice Scalia saying this in Supreme Court opinions. You see politicians throughout the world alluding to this. And this is sort of the prelude to my theory and the rest of the book. And this was something, this this chapter is a bit of a pet project of mine because my idea was, well, um, if the right to exclude foreigners is this this fundamental, this platonic, uh, uh, you know, foundation or forms a part of the platonic foundation of what it means to be a sovereign state. Well, then we should find it. We should find evidence for that in the international legal jurisprudence stretching back to the emergence of the modern state system in the 16th and 17th century. And now look, I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a, an international law scholar. Like I'm not a, a super duper expert on international legal jurisprudence, but this is an exploratory analysis that I wanted to do because what unpacking this conventional wisdom and it's, I would call them shaky foundations does is lead into a later conversation about why this conventional wisdom shows up, like where this conventional wisdom comes from. And so what I do in uh, in the book is go through um, a bunch of old international uh, legal thinkers, Vattel, Vittoria, Pufendorf, and I show the emergence of this inherent right to exclude over time that starts with, in fact, the opposite, that states actually have the obligation to welcome foreigners for a variety of reasons. And the international legal jurisprudence, the interesting thing about it is by the time we get to the early to late modern period, I mean, that's not a very precise way of talking about it, uh, it, it's actually much more mixed than I think most people would admit. And what I do is use this bit of historical context to discuss how the conventional wisdom starts to emerge as the traditionally immigrant receiving societies in the West, in mostly in the Anglosphere, start receiving more immigrants from these racially undesirable places. And so that's a bit of destabilization that I do in order to rhetorically talk about the history that I want to talk about later on. And it, it does, it you know, it, it does segue very nicely into your theoretical framework. So Uh, In the book, you present a theory for how it is that colorblind immigration policies result in racial inequality. Can you kind of take us through uh, your theory and your reasoning? Of course. So the basic idea is that the rationale for enacting restrictive immigration policies or for restricting immigrants in general 
rests on the same or the, the, those rationales are quite consistent over time if you poke at them a little bit. So thinking about the United States, because I'm American, and so this, uh, so that's the case that I know best. So looking into the in the late 19th century, when the United States was considering enacting the Chinese Exclusion Act, a lot of the rationales put forth about people from China as being inherently undesirable in a variety of ways looks remarkably similar to the rationales that people are using throughout the world in the 21st century to reduce or to, to restrict people from a variety of places, right? And there was a lot more explicit biological or scientific racism used in that language in the 19th and early 20th century. But the crux of the justifications are the same. It's, hey, um, people from these places are undesirable or dangerous or dirty, or uh, they're going to pull at the the social, the, the, the fabric of society and lead things to, you know, go to hell in a handbasket, if I'm able to use the expression on the podcast. And that's remarkably consistent with what we hear today, to, to repeat myself. And so the argument that I make is that Western countries in particular that enact these colorblind policies in the modern day are leaning on the same justification. And what I, in, in the move that I make is to say that it is in fact those migrants from those places that seem the most inherently or objectively undesirable which are the the migrants in the places that were affected the most negatively by the legacies and histories of Western imperialism, colonialism, and neo-imperialism. And so the same countries that, uh, that are the same places that countries in the West negatively affected to, I don't know, that, that's the understatement of the century, are those that now seem the most objectively undesirable. And so it's this legacy of Western incursions throughout the world in the form of you know, chattel slavery or imperialism or neo-imperialism that did the damage that we now say today are, uh, uh, are the criterion by which we re- objectively restrict these people. And so it's, I think, on the one hand, a pretty straightforward argument, but on the other hand, it requires somebody to think historically about international history, of course, in general, but the, how the legacies of Western incursions throughout the global South affect our perceptions of those places today. So let's turn to the book's um, empirics. Uh, so you, you kind of started to hint at um, what you call in the book a forensic approach to uncovering racial inequality. Um, so can, can you describe these findings for us? Yeah, of course. This is um, this is a chapter that, yeah, it, it, I, I'm just reflecting on on writing the chapter now, and it's sort of the culmination of many discussions that I had had, you know, many conversations and discussions I had had throughout the course of graduate school uh, about what it was that I was doing and whether it was a legitimate way of thinking about the international system and a legitimate way of studying uh, this, uh, you know 
politically fraught and difficult to study aspect of the international system. And so what I wanted to do in this chapter was deal with a variety of the skeptics that I had encountered, you know, in my journey thus far, you know, there, I could tell you, um, some interesting stories about conference panels that maybe you know off air we could we could talk about, but 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 really I wanted to deal with a few main issues. Uh, the first is uh, the issue that well um, uh, the thing that you're uncovering uh, it's not it's not race or racial discrimination or whatever you want to call it. Stop playing the race card. What are you talking about? You're just talking about sort of. Um, incidental inequalities that aren't racial. And in fact, I don't even know what that means because laws themselves are colorblind. And, and I call these people the uh, uh, racial skeptics. And so the interesting thing about these folks is that you see this in discourses, not just in American politics, but, but politics throughout the world. You know, the people say, well, we're not talking about racial discrimination. It just is it just is so happens that people prefer to hire people with certain skills and there's nothing discriminatory about that as long as our policies are explicitly discriminatory. So stop playing the race card. Stop studying this thing. It's, it's irrelevant. And my take here is that you can sort of hear in your mind how this is verging on that same uh, on that same justification that existed in the 19th century and exists today about, okay, well, we don't want to admit these objectively undesirable people. And so you can see how it's easy to deliberately drain a discussion of its racial content and in, in so doing perpetuating racial inequality. The second group of skeptics, I think is a bit more difficult for me to reckon with personally and as a scholar, it's the position of racial eliminativists, uh, people like uh, uh, you know Anthony Appiah and, and, and others. So this is a philosophical position that what scholars and people in general ought to do is stop breathing life into this concept of race because what you're doing is elevating this this label that has no scientific or biological basis. You're, you're breathing life into it. You're, you're aiding in its social construction and that's, that's doing violence and that's not something you want to do. And this was, to be honest with you, something that I had a really hard time dealing with because I am somebody who is really sensitive to these really important ethical essentially issues, right? But on the other hand, I'm thinking about, I, I, I was thinking about how, well, if we don't bring to light inequalities and put the name race on them, then it's just much easier to brush them under the carpet or brush them under the rug, if I'm using the right uh, uh, metaphor there. And so in this aspect, what I do is lean on the idea, well, um, a big critique of French social policy is, so, so in France, um, because they have a, re, a, a Republican conception of the state and then citizenry, there's no hyphenated French people, right? You're not Algerian French, you're just French. And the problem with that, and the problem that uh, their society runs into 
when they don't collect these statistics by race or ethnicity is that it allows inequalities to fester and go on unrecognized. And, and this is something that we saw during the pandemic as well. There's a, there are many articles uh, that you know, I, I could point you to which show how inequalities in uh, you know, COVID-related outcomes in France can boil down to racial inequalities, but France's Republican model actually precluded them from uncovering it um, uh, you know, before it got too late. And the final point I'll, I'll, I'll bring up here, I guess the, the second to final point, I do that a lot, is uh, uh, this idea that race doesn't travel around uh, across national boundaries. So um, somebody could say, well, sure, race, it's really important. And maybe the international system is structured as a white supremacist institution or something like that. But, but the idea of race doesn't travel because the United States and uh, Lebanon and Australia and Spain, they all have different racial uh, categories. You know, we, we would jargon it up by calling them racial ontologies. But the idea is that in the United States, black-white racism, for a variety of reasons, is one of the most salient uh, uh, ways of thinking about race. But in France or in Spain or whenever, that, those things are a little bit different. And this is a great point. And this is this is this is absolutely a concern, not just with my project, but with thinking about race at the level of the international system. So it's again, it's something that we want to study. Like we want to say something uh, empirically grounded about race in the contemporary international system, but we run into this problem. And so I, what what I do is I I, I lean back on Alan Locke's conception of race as an ethnic fiction in order to motivate the uh, uh, the sort of modern social construction of white supremacy. So even though different countries have different racial groups, well, for a variety of uh, good historical reasons, white supremacy is really what we're talking about here. And so we can think about uh, you know, the racial hierarchy with those constructed as white on top and then everybody else below. And that's, and that's one way I think about that in addition to, to, to leaning on Locke's use of race as an ethnic fiction there. And the final thing I'll say is that um, there are a variety of issues, um, sort of technical issues associated with studying uh, race and racism. You know, the problem that these laws are colorblind, the problem that, uh, racism is an ideology. How do you study that thing? Um, Jan Elster has this critique of Marxists um, where he basically says that uh, a, lot of, a lot of Marxism is unfalsifiable because they're trying to study something that is... Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll spare the listeners all the gory details, but I run into some of these same issues. And finally, there's data availability problems. And these problems have gotten less severe in recent years and actually they've gotten increasingly less severe so i wish i had access to some of this data um, but I, alas the book is what it is and so I, I i deal with some of these as well in the chapter so after sort of responding right to to skeptics and to critics um let's talk about your sort of first set of empirical results right where um you you started to tell us about uh, how you estimate a baseline model uh, of uh, cross-border flows, and then you look at what actual patterns uh, in migration look like and how those deviate. Um, so can you explain some of your findings in that chapter? Yeah, of course. So a a as you said, 
that's that's the goal. So to create this baseline model where I get the best predictions of the migration from a given state as I can possibly do, and then I compare that to what we actually observed. And so the findings are quite simple, but they're definitely illustrative of the patterns that we would think that we should see if we lived in a world in which racial, racial bias and international migration persisted. So the first thing, irrespective of how you want to deal with the race question, we see that racial or we see that bias in general has increased over the last 50 or so years. So the difference between observed and predicted migration uh, was actually quite small back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, but it has risen pretty consistently since then. So that's one thing that's that's uh, important to note. We also see that if we separate countries into their World Bank classification as you know, low income, lower middle income, upper middle income, and high income, we see that low income states um, have by far the, the largest difference between observed and uh, expected or predicted migration. And then finally, when uh, thinking about race itself, we can imagine uh, you know, comparing sub-Saharan African states to states in the OECD or uh, uh, you know, black states versus uh, white states or something like that. In, in, in each of these cases, we see really consistent differences between states at the top of the, that are constructed as being at the top of the international racial hierarchy and those constructed as, at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. And so this is my first descriptive set of findings that provides sort of prima facie evidence of this thing that I'm trying to uncover. You also show that um, Anglo-European states enact more um, policy restrictions on immigration when they're receiving immigrants from non-white states. Is that I right? Do, I do. I do. I do. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for thanks for reminding me. Yeah, um, uh, chapter five is a doozy. So um, if that's not a uh, an exciting plug for the book, I don't know what it is. <laughs> so yeah. It, so in the in the second half of the chapter, I test more specifically the theoretical propositions that I talk about in chapter three. And I look at whether states for which we have data on their immigration policies, whether those states enact more restrictive policies after receiving inflows from uh, non-white immigrants. And in fact, I do, I do find uh, pretty consistent evidence of that as well. And so taking together that is my sort of prima facie evidence of this thing that I'm trying to uncover. And it is very compelling. Um, so turning to your second set of empirical results, uh, you look at the effect of colonialism on racial bias and on restrictive policies. So can you tell us about that? So what you'll notice if um, you remember from when I was talking about the actual theory, um, the, the theory is all about the effects of colonialism and imperialism. And so I, what I wanted to do was investigate in, in a similar way as I did previously, whether countries that received inflows of immigrants from uh, uh, countries that had been previously colonized, whether we see the same reactive effect on immigration policy. So if a country receives uh, a bunch of 
a bunch of immigrants from formerly colonized parts of the world, whether those countries then enact more restrictive policies in a, in a sort of reactive sense, because in the theory, the, the theory is all about the effects of you know, Anglo-European colonialism. And so it, it does not need to be the case that a country was a colonial power. All, all I'm talking about here is now the effect of colonialism irrespective of which country that effect came from, had the material effects on these parts of the world that constructed them in the sort of international zeitgeist or in the international consciousness as being undesirable or dangerous or inferior or what have you. And so that's what I do. That's what I do in this chapter. And so I show in general that this is the case. I uh, use a variety of different measures to test this, but what I then, but when I de- what, but what I then try to do is see, well, look, um, the data aren't perfect, but the data that I do have on countries' immigration policies can be split into countries that were colonial powers and countries that were not colonial powers. And so what I do then is try to see whether, this effect is strongest for the countries that were the colonial powers. And I, I, I do find evidence for that. And so it's, uh, it's, it's another attempt at, in a world in which we have imperfect data on this, trying to slowly and deliberately peel the, you know, peel back the layers of the onion. I don't know. I'm, I'm just really, uh, uh, you know, leaning into the to the weird uh, turns of phrase here, so I apologize for that. And just try to layer on layer on evidence as best I can for this theoretical proposition at the cross national, international system level. So your final uh, empirical chapter looks then at the behavior of post colonial states. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are your results there? So this is a, I think this is perhaps one of the, I mean, this is probably, this is probably the most controversial part of the book, I think, because what I'm talking about here is how decolonization may not have been the you know, unqualified good that some people might say that it was, because what I discuss in the chapter is how post-colonial states in being inculcated into the modern institution of sovereignty learn, quote-unquote, how to be modern states from uh, other states in the international system. And I draw on Gramsci and I, you know, I, have, um, I, I, I draw on other international relations debates on whether states can be socialized in uh, things like international institutions and international fora and I do so because I wanted to say something about why or whether the international system we live in today is actually a less equal place than we should expect it to be. And what I find is that states, that post-colonial states that share more international institutions with, uh, I don't know, states of the Anglo-European core, you know, those former colonizers or the great powers, however you want to think about them, actually end up enacting more restrictive policies too. 
And I, and interestingly enough, I find that this effect of sharing international fora with uh, great powers or Anglo-European states on immigration policy restrictiveness is actually stronger for those post-colonial states. So I find the sort of overall relationship, but that relationship is extra intense for post-colonial states. And I, what I want to emphasize to, I guess, either the reader or the potential reader is that what I'm not doing here is engaging in victim blaming. So what I don't want to say is that, oh, these post-colonial states are responsible for making the unequal world that we live in because, oh, no, like that is absolutely not the goal of this chapter. And that's the reason why I draw on Gramsci's uh you know, Gramsci's writings on hegemony and on world polity theory, which talks about how uh, um, uh, sort of Western forms of statehood. So what it means to be a state that we need a flag and we need ministries of education and we need to do X, Y and Z in order to be a legitimate state, how those not necessarily diffuse throughout the world, but how this hegemony sort of traps post-colonial states into acting and forming themselves as sovereign states. And when they do that, that comes with a lot of baggage. A part of that baggage is thinking that they need to have strong borders and build border fences and things like that in order to perform their sovereign statehood. And there's been, I think, quite a lot of interesting recent literature on this that you know, we don't have time to go into, but this is my attempt at seeing if I can unpack one, I think, important aspect of the larger mechanism linking previous, uh, previous Anglo-European imperialism to the unequal world that we live in today. So the book has a concluding chapter that's very thoughtful, where you go through sort of various implications uh, of your research for, for the real world and also for scholarship. Um, well, I, I don't think we'll be able to cover uh, all of it, but I, I wanted to ask you, you know, based on this research, what do you think international migration is going to look like moving forward? Yeah, that is the big scary question, right? So. When I was writing the book, I don't know, I'm a I'm generally an optimistic person. So like, I think that the sun is gonna come out tomorrow and things like that. That's just sort of my, my general vibe. And so I was on the horns of the dilemma when I was writing this concluding chapter because I wanted it to, I don't know, I wanted it to say something. I, I wanted to, to leave the reader thinking broadly about what international politics is going to look like, you know, go, going forward. And, and, and you really, I think, put, put, put your finger on that. And so on the one hand, I would love to believe that, well, um, in a world of worsening climate change, et cetera, pandemics, et cetera, et cetera, that um, we should, uh, that countries in the global North will lean into their cosmopolitan sensibilities and, or their, or their uh, homo economicus, you know, orthodox economist sensibilities and say, ah, well, um, uh, loosening immigration restrictions, that's either Pareto improving or normatively the right thing to do, particularly in a world where sea levels are rising. So maybe what we should do is, you know, just make this little change because everybody will win. But of course, 
that isn't the world that we live in. And I think the negative or the, the non-sanguine tone that the conclusion takes reflects the moment that I was writing this in where we saw states use the pandemic as justification to close their borders and enact increasingly draconian restrictions on foreigners, as well as, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, the climate change is just, I mean, we can't call it the elephant in the, what, I mean, I guess it is the elephant in the room. I, I'm just trying to, again, think about a bad metaphor or way of talking about it here. So, you know, we, we, I was writing this during COVID-19, but COVID-19, that period of time was also a time in which we saw many, many natural disasters leading us to think a lot more about the implications of climate change and what climate, you know, the effect of climate migrants and what we can expect. And so it's really hard for me to imagine a world in which without some sort of, I don't know, exogenous shock that we'll see things become more equal or, uh, I don't know, less restrictive. And this is, I don't know, I think about other books that are pessimistic. I'm thinking about Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, where he based, where the implication of that book is basically, I don't know, we need a world war or a a complete and utter global financial meltdown in order to reduce this inequality. And I, I don't want to say that sort of thing explicitly, but it's sort of where my thinking is going, just given what we know about the relationship between leaders and publics in Western democracies, and not just Western democracies, you know, countries throughout the world, and how easy it is to rally support for increasingly restrictive immigration policies or anti-foreigner policies or general anti-cosmopolitan policies. And so while I want to grasp for optimism, uh, it's, it's, it's quite hard for me to imagine a world with fewer immigration restrictions, at least in the near term, without something wild happening. So, uh, Drew, um, obviously there's much, much more to the book. Uh, and I, I, I want to make sure to men to, that listeners know this as well. Uh, we've only kind of skimmed the surface. Uh, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important for listeners to know? Ooh. Wow, let's think. Um, yeah, so I think there is... I, I, I can imagine somebody who's interested either in racial justice in a non-academic sense or... Uh, race and racism in international relations in the sort of scholarly international relations sense, approach or looking at the book or approaching it and thinking, okay, well, he's using, I don't know, fancy statistical techniques to tell me something I already know. So what's the point of this book? And what I want to emphasize to people who might be thinking that way is that Sort of on the on the one hand, for the for the person who isn't thinking about this from the I don't know the confines of the discipline of international relations, I think what the book does, and it does at length, is think about race, racism, racial discrimination, and racial inequality in a global sense, and that thinking about these concepts in a global sense can help us understand 
the world we live in and the inequalities of the world we live in, particularly by thinking historically. And not just thinking historically in the, I don't know, the simple sense by saying, oh yeah, you know, history matters, right? But thinking about specifically how imperialism didn't just have these, you know, horrific effects in the Belgian Congo, you know, at the height of Leopold, right? But how those effects carry through to the modern day and affect how our contemporary political discourse deals with, I don't know, hypothetically, the governor of a big state sending uh, asylum seekers to another state, right? And to my colleagues in international relations who are interested in issues of race and racism, but, you know, might think that, uh, you know, this is overly technical or facile or what have you. There's a lot in the book in which I deal with debates in the international relations literature from a perspective, from the perspective of somebody who takes issues of race and racism seriously. And I think there's a lot for everybody in the discipline to engage with, you know, sort of even even hearkening back to, you know, old paradigmatic debates, you know, between constructivists or between constructivists and realists or whatever, if the extent to which people actually want to have those conversations today. But I think there's a lot to chew on for everybody in the discipline who's broadly interested in issues of race and racism, because I don't know, I just tried to do my best and leave a lot of meat on the bone for everybody else to hopefully come along and engage with me. And I'm, I'm certain that it's going to be a very fruitful uh, research agenda that you, you and others are going to continue carrying forward. Um, so Drew, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just want to ask you one final question. You know, this book is out in the world. Um, what is it that you're working on now? Ah, very exciting. So yeah, that's 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 the funny thing, right? I mean, you you finish a book and then you have other things you want to get to. And so, yeah, I'm... Uh, you're trying to, to clear several other projects off my desk before I think about the next big thing. So I have a, another paper that reveals racial discrimination in bilateral visa policies using the same type of argument. And so that um, is uh, not officially out in the world, but hopefully will be out in the world sometime soonish. I have other projects on um uh, the brain gain versus the brain drain. So whether more open borders would lead to, you know, more harm in the global South, you know, because of brain gain or brain drains. And I, in fact, you know, show, I, I show added evidence for the brain gain. Um, I have other projects with colleagues on how border fences don't actually work. They're actually uh, big, expensive uh, boondoggles that, um, you know, even if we thought their aims were legitimate. They don't actually work. So I have a couple of projects in that area. Um, with a colleague of mine here at Florida, um, we look at the relationship between uh, national identity and support for immigrants and immigrate, immigrants um, promoting policies. And so that's another project that I'm excited about. And finally, I've actually started in the last several months um, another really cool paper that I'm super excited about that tests using county level data in the United States, whether Putnam and Huntington were right, that immigration leads to a decline in social capital. And I actually find the opposite, that immigration leads to an increase in social capital. 
I don't want to give, you know, I don't want to give away all my secrets, but I'm super excited about that, that project. And um, going forward, I'm actually thinking larger about how, um, uh, you know, the expansion of the liberal international order after the Second World War uh, has led to this international system that is, you know, continues to be racially unequal. And so I'm interested in a lot of these uh, big questions. But just in general, um, I like uh, working on big questions that are hard to answer. And so, um, you know, I look forward to, I guess now having more time to, to lean into some of those things. Those all sound like fantastic projects and I look forward to, to reading all of them. Um, so Drew, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm a, a longtime listener, and so the fact that I get to be on this is just is just really a treat. So, um, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. The book is Andrew Rosenberg's Undesirable Immigrants, Why Racism Persists in International Migration, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening. <laughs>